You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, There are a lot of feast days on the Catholic calendar. I was raised Catholic, as I believe I may have mentioned on this program once or twice. I am from a very Catholic family, and I have the Catholic kitsch and the sexual hang-ups to prove it. But somehow, the fact that there's an annual feast day on the Catholic calendar dedicated to ass, that escaped my notice. The Feast of the Ass? What do you know? Every January 14th, once a year, Catholics celebrate the Feast of the Ass. I would like to extend my best wishes belatedly to all who celebrated the Feast of the Ass last week. I hope you had a good one. I hope you had a nice little feast. Of course, it's not what you think. It's not how it sounds. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. The Feast of the Ass, Festum Asinorum, is not a celebration of analingus. It's not about rimming. Catholic feast days, they aren't even feasts. They're annual religious celebrations, not big-ass Thanksgiving-style dinners. And the Feast of the Ass is meant to commemorate, it's meant to celebrate, the Holy Family's flight into Egypt, which went like this. After Mary gave birth in the manger in Bethlehem because there was no room in the inn, after the three kings showed up bearing gifts, and after the little drummer boy wandered in and convinced himself that what Mary really wanted right now was a drum solo, because exhausted new moms with sleeping infants... They love their drum solos. After all of that, an angel showed up to warn Joseph that Herod, the king of the Jews at the time, was coming to kill Jesus because he didn't want any competition where this king of the Jews shit was concerned. And the angel told Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and flee the fuck into Egypt. Now, did an angel really appear to Joseph with a warning? Probably not. Joseph probably made it up so he could get Mary the fuck away from the brat with the drum. But angel or no angel, the holy family got the fuck out of Bethlehem. They fled into Egypt and Mary rode there on the back of a donkey, an ass. The feast of the ass celebrates that donkey. And according to Wikipedia, all other donkey related stories in the Bible. And there are others. There are lots. Because Donkeys were the lime scooters of Bible times. They were all over the place, just laying around. Anyway, seems to me that if the Catholic Church could steal Saturnalia from the Romans and turn it into Christmas and steal hundreds of thousands of minor local gods all over the world and turn them into Catholic saints, each with their own feast day, I don't see why people who eat ass or like to have their asses eaten can't steal the feast of the ass from the Catholic Church. And it turns out the feast of the ass... Originally, a holiday called Servulus that the Catholics stole from the pagans. So while two wrongs don't make a right, if the Catholics stole the Feast of the Ass from the Romans, I don't see why us ass-eaters today can't steal the Feast of the Ass back from the Catholics. It's not even like the Catholics are using it anymore. I've been Catholic my whole life and only found out about the Feast of the Ass last week. Once upon a time, the church celebrated the Feast of the Ass by having a young woman ride a donkey through town, and then the donkey was up on the altar during Mass. Trust me, that wasn't happening at St. Jerome's on the north side of Chicago when I was a kid. I would have remembered that. I called my siblings just to be safe and asked them, and they don't remember any donkeys in church either. If I sound a little upset, it's because I am. I'm a little upset that I only found out about the Feast of the Ass last week after Peter Merkin... A follower of mine on Twitter tweeted at me about it on the day, on the day of the Feast of the Ass. 
Peter only has 22 followers. He's at Merkin underscore Peter. And he doesn't tweet often, but when he does, they're good tweets. Like that one to me about the Feast of the Ass. He followed that up with another tweet with a suggested menu for the Feast of the Ass, rump roast, toss salad, and remember to fuck first. Even though Peter's bio said, don't follow me, I went ahead and followed him anyway. And you should too, because anyone who brings something as amazing as the Feast of the Ass to all of our attentions, that guy deserves a follow. Kids, mark your calendars. We missed it this year. We are not going to miss it next year. Whatever else is going on next year, this time roughly, whatever else is going wrong, however the midterms turn out, whatever dumbass shit Trump is saying to his dumbass followers at his dumbass rallies, whatever mansion and cinema are blocking the Senate, whatever new variant of COVID we're onto then, whatever new superhero movie we're all being forced to sit through, whatever beloved celebrity we're grieving as we marvel at the apparent immortality of Henry Kissinger and Rupert Murdoch and Clarence Thomas, whatever else is going on, we have something to look forward to. The Feast of the Ass, January 14th, 2023. Mark your calendars now. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro and magnum editions of the Savage Lovecast, Dr. Stacy Dillon returns to the show to weigh in on whether we should be sleeping with unvaccinated people. And on the magnum, comedian Zach Noe Towers joins me. He's gay. I'm gay. I believe I may have mentioned the fact that I'm gay once or twice on this program as well. And me and Zach, we take some very gay calls together. That is on the magnum Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love, the magnum, lovecast, twice as much show, more questions, more answers, more guests, no ads. Subscribe now at savage.love. All right, here we go. Hi, Dan. I have been with my fiance for 12 years. We met a couple of friends just two months ago, and one day a girl in the friend group asked to have a threesome with us. I was open to the idea, but I said I would need time to think about it. She kept pushing to do it now, and I agreed. I set my boundary. No PIV between them. I asked for confirmation, and they agreed. I looked into my fiance's eyes, and I said, please, please don't leave me out. Touch me, look at me as much as you can. Just please make me feel included. He said, of course, sweetheart. The threesome begins. A couple minutes passed, and the girl asked if my fiance could put his dick in her. I looked at him, and he was just looking back at me. I felt pressured, but I consented. Everything was okay, but I thought she was inconsiderate throughout. She was asking my boyfriend to take his condom off and to come in or on her, which felt inconsiderate to my feelings. I said no to both. I had to repeat no. This threesome ends. I'm still feeling good at this point. The night passes and I have my back turned to them while I'm making food. I hear slurping sounds and I turn around to see the girl giving my fiance a blowjob while he's on FaceTime with one of our friends. I immediately start crying, but no one notices, stops, or looks at me. I feel myself getting sick and I yell I'm going to the bathroom as I run to go throw up. They keep going. I come back out and he's moaning loudly and face-fucking her still. I yell stop, and they do. They had been going at it for about 15 minutes, completely without me. I step outside with him and cry and yell hysterically. All he says is, sorry, I thought you would be fine with it. I can't stop crying that night, the day after. I asked him to stay, 
with me the next morning after that instead of going to work out with her. He got mad at me for asking that, but did. I asked him to not hang out with her alone for a while, and he got mad at me. He said I was taking away his best friend. We argued for a week until he broke up with me. I left our shared apartment that we had been living in together, and he hung out with her almost every day after that. He's now asking for me back, but I'm so hurt. Am I crazy for being extremely traumatized and hurt by this? These are the three ways people hear about. The three ways that end in disaster. The three ways that end relationships. The three ways that end, in this case, an engagement. You have every right to be angry. You told your boyfriend and you told this woman that you would have a three-way with them so long as there was no penetration of her with your fiance's dick. And they agreed to that. And then they did that thing that sometimes people do. And in the moment when people do this, they prove that they aren't the kind of people anyone would be safe having a three-way with. They, in the moment, in the heat of the moment, turn to you and reopen negotiations about what was allowed during this three-way. That was the moment for you to call it, call it off when they put that kind of pressure on you. It doesn't sound like you really wanted to have this three-way at all, and you agreed to go along with it because you felt pressure. You literally say you felt pressured, but you consented. All right, well, your consent is tarnished by the pressure that you felt to go through with it. And then the pressure that was applied to you in the moment to agree to let your boyfriend and this woman have PIV sex, and then your boyfriend, sorry, ex-fiance, not coming through with the kind of attention that he assured you he would lavish on you throughout, and having sex with this woman in front of you but behind your back while you prepared food for everyone after the three-way was technically over. Oh my God, yeah, I'm glad you're out of this relationship. I'm glad you've dumped this motherfucker. All that said, you're listening to this show. You've probably heard me talk about this in the past three ways might not be for you. You know that now. Please don't have them uh, again in the future under similar kind of pressure or duress. Never again agree to a three-way that wasn't your idea, what you wanted to do, and wasn't a three-way you initiated or suggested to your future romantic partner to be named later. But when you have a three-way, when three people get together and have a three-way. I think it's totally fine, totally appropriate, kind of standard for the couple, if it's a couple having a three-way with a very special guest star, for the comfort level of both or one of the people in the couple who may be more dubious or feel a little bit more insecure to declare some things out of bounds. No PIV is really standard. We can have a three-way, we can roll around, mutual masturbation, oral with everybody, but PIV is just for me. What you asked was not unheard of, also wasn't unreasonable. But when you have a three-way, you have to be comfortable with the idea that there may be a point where you're observing, however briefly, a two-way. There will be a moment where two people are vibing on each other during a three-way and the third person is not left out, but is getting to watch a little porn unfold in front of them. And if you can't project yourself into that moment where you are left out, where it's become a little bit of a two-way for a moment in front of you without feeling scared, angry, furious in advance, three ways aren't for you. I don't think what they did 
counts as the sort of scenario that I'm describing. What I'm highlighting here is a warning for others who may be thinking about having three ways. They initiated sex when you were out of the room with your back turned after you had agreed to the three-way under the condition that your boyfriend always be lavishing attention on you at the same time that he was sexually interacting with this other woman. And he didn't fucking do that because he's a selfish fucking prick. And she's an inconsiderate prick. And I'm glad he's out of your life. I think you should stick to your guns. I don't think that you should see him again. I don't think you should get back together. I don't think that you should uncall off the engagement that you called off because it wasn't just about the three-way going badly. It's why it went badly. What he was demonstrating to you as it was going badly, which was a disregard for your emotional safety during sex, a willingness to selfishly violate your consent, what you had consented to in advance during varsity level sex play involving another person. I wouldn't feel safe having one-on-one sex with someone who had done that to me during a three-way. I also don't think I could trust someone if I wanted to be in a monogamous relationship who would behave that way during a three-way to honor the monogamous commitment that they made to me if monogamy was indeed something I needed or insisted on. And it sounds like monogamy is something you need and should insist on going forward with someone else. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the team. I am a 48-year-old straight cis woman from Colorado. And uh, with perimenopause, my sex drive has gone through the roof. And I am really interested in having the conversation with my husband of many years um, about opening our relationship. Um, We've had this conversation before, back when his sex drive was higher than mine. And at the time, we decided it wasn't necessary, and we were both afraid of catching feelings, so we just put that back in the box. Uh, So now I want to have that conversation again, and I've listened to your show and listened to other sex advice folks who all say, have the conversation with your clothes on, uh, be curious, be open, all that. What I'm struggling with is finding the right timing to have that conversation. We still have kids at home and life is busy and often our together time is usually sexy time. So it's really hard to find time alone where it feels appropriate. And to be honest, I'm a little afraid he's not going to have a good reaction. So part of me also just dreads, I don't know, rocking the boat with other parts of our life. You know, is he stressed at work? I don't want to add that stress to him. Are we about to go on vacation and I don't want to upset our vacation? Like, I feel like this conversation is going to be upsetting and we can get through it, but I just, I don't ever want to have the upsetting conversation, but I need to have the upsetting conversation. So how do people choose when to have this conversation? How do they set it up? You make it sound like it was a mutual decision not to open up the relationship when your husband raised the issue, when your husband initiated the difficult conversation that now you're afraid to initiate, that it was a mutual decision, that you guys both decided together that it was too risky, that there was a chance one or the other of you might catch feelings for someone. And so you decided together as a couple 
not to open the relationship back when your husband was the hornier one. Now that you're the hornier one, and congratulations that you're experiencing perimenopause as horny-inducing as many women do. Good for you. Gold star. You got the trophy. You get the prize. You want to revisit this subject, and you're nervous and trepidatious. And I, I just have to assume that you're nervous about reinitiating this conversation because it wasn't a mutual decision. Because you guys didn't decide together not to open the relationship back when your husband was the horny one, but your husband agreed not to open the relationship back then when he was horny at your insistence. And he's going to feel cheated out of whatever it was that he could have made happen back then or just angry. And that's just a possibility here. That's just something you're going to have to face down. Seems easier though considering that your husband already initiated this conversation once, he sort of opened the door to the topic, to the subject, to the possibility of opening the relationship at some point. So I would encourage you just to over up, over up, and toss it out there on the table. You know, we're going to have a difficult conversation when you have to address something with somebody that you think there's a good chance might upset them, there's never the good time. There's never the right time. Whenever you have that conversation, it's always going to screw something up. Maybe a vacation, maybe the sex it looks like you're about to have, maybe the dinner you're about to have, or the TV show you're about to watch. It's always going to be the wrong time if you're obsessed about the possibility that there might be an initial negative reaction. If you shut this conversation down last time, if it was your decision, if you said no to opening the relationship last time and your husband sulked about that and you're afraid that he's going to react negatively to you raising the subject now that you're the horny one, yeah, that's a real possibility. And you're just going to have to power through that. But don't do that thing where you convince yourself that the initial reaction is the eternal reaction. He might react Badly, he might react with some anger or hurt Fifi's about how the conversation went last time. But, you know, he did want to open the relationship before. He did put that in your head. And now here you are at a stage where you're ready to reopen negotiations about reopening negotiations. Toss it on the table. And I got to say, I don't believe that during sex is always the wrong time to have this kind of conversation. You know, if you and your husband have the kind of sex life or you enjoy dirty talk during sex and you talk about past experiences or potential future experiences during sex, testing the waters a little bit during sex, pushing the envelope a little bit during sex, you know, dirty talking, not about opening the relationship, but dirty talking about other partners, other experiences, uh, even, you know, maybe even dirty talking about what it would be like to open the relationship when you're both hot and bothered and horny and fucking, well, that will then require you to have a conversation when you're done fucking after the orgasms during your, during his, <laughs> hopefully yours as well, during your refractory periods, when you're calm and you're both thinking clearly and he's not thinking with his dick and you're not thinking with your twat and you can have this conversation again. Hopefully your husband won't have as bad a reaction as you fear. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was a completely mutual decision. Maybe your husband's come to you in the years since you 
both together decided an open relationship wasn't for you and he's told you how glad he was that you'd never open the relationship and he would never want to open the relationship now. And yeah, maybe a whole bunch of things have happened in the intervening years since your husband brought this up when he was the horny one that make this conversation feel riskier or scarier than it might otherwise. But this subject, opening the relationship, you both have already addressed it. You've already talked about it at his initiation. So don't think of yourself as raising the subject or initiating the conversation. You're picking this conversation that he initiated back up. Hi, Dan. This is a micro listener with a question about pandemic and relationship ethics. I'm a polyamorous woman and my boyfriend and I have a good friend who has been part of our lives for our entire relationship. And prior to that, was good friends with my boyfriend first. We go on a lot of adventures together and we really click and enjoy each other's company. And for about the past year, my this friend and I have developed some chemistry. I am so into it, Dan. I want to fuck this guy. We have had some sexy encounters, but nothing that's really blown the door open on our mutual attraction. But I just keep waiting and hoping for that moment. And I think it's pretty safe to say he knows how I feel and appreciates it. But this past summer, after we tried to go to an event together where vaccination was required, we learned that this mutual friend is unvaccinated and refuses to get vaccinated. We learned a lot of things about him after that incident, like that he was raised in a religion that doesn't believe in a lot of medical intervention, and thus he's never been vaccinated against anything, like since childhood. And he continues some of his religious beliefs and this aversion to medical intervention into adulthood. I was shocked to hear this. Um, Because I've always thought of him as such an insightful and educated person, and I don't think this part of his life is something he really shares with a lot of people. On the one hand, I felt honestly enraged to hear this because I suffer from a chronic condition and people's spiritual bullshit about health and disease have irritated me for a long time. And those feelings have gotten stronger during COVID. On the other hand, as someone who suffers from a chronic condition, I also think that people should be entitled to their full agency when it comes to medical decisions, even if I think that their choices are wrong or harmful. But beyond that, my boyfriend and I have had some severe COVID cases in our family, so I feel pretty sensitive on this topic. And I guess I'm really not sure what to do about this friend and my feelings for him. He told us that he tries to be ethical about how he lives his life right now, like he doesn't use a fake wax card to get into places, and he tries to avoid things where he might expose you know, people unnecessarily. However, it has certainly changed my view of him, even though we try to avoid this topic. But Dan, I am still so into him. I don't know what to do. I try to talk myself down with thoughts of how he's not right for me, but the feelings keep coming back up. I think if this was someone I was dating for a primary relationship, I would totally dump his ass because this shit would make me too crazy. But when it comes to romantic friendship with someone I see at most a few times a month, it's hard to make this a deal breaker in my mind. We do still have so much in common and so much good energy. Joining me to help tackle this question, Dr. Stacy DeLynn, MD, a board-certified physician who shares really sound science about COVID-19 on her absolutely invaluable Instagram account. Also a frequent guest here on the Lovecast and in my column, and a poly person. So, uh, Dr. DeLynn, thank you for jumping on the phone. Thanks for having me. So, to sum up, should someone with a chronic health condition be hanging out? with an unvaccinated person a few times a month? And is there much of a distinction to be made between hanging out with that person a few times a month and fucking that person once in a while? Yeah, no, I think that um, the virus is spread through aerosols, so any indoor contact is going to be risky. Um, I think this caller is what we call the vaccinated vulnerable. So um, those are people who've received the vaccine, but they have underlying conditions like immunosuppression or cancer, other things that 
they're significantly more at risk of getting severe infections that can kill them. So, you know, she says she's in this high risk group and in spending time with someone who's unvaccinated, like, I just want to talk about what it means practically to be unvaccinated right now, particularly in the setting of this really massive and unprecedented surge. Um, unvaccinated people are six times likely to test more positive, nine times more likely to be hospitalized. They're 14 times more likely to die from COVID related complications. So when you're unvaccinated, it means that you carry larger amounts of virus when infected. It takes you longer to clear the virus. You're known to be significantly more contagious for a longer period of time. The jury is not still out on any of this. These are established facts on what it means to be unvaccinated. So, you know, in this question of this man that she's interested in is behaving ethically, you know, that's really concerning to me that he would expose himself to her, someone who's in that vaccinated vulnerable group. And let's let's just drill down on that, whether he's been behaving ethically or not. She says they've been hanging out for a year, but she only found out this summer that he's not vaccinated, (laughs) which means they were hanging out after the vaccines were widely available, and she had assumed he was vaccinated and only found out he was unvaccinated when they went to a venue that he was refused entry to because he was not vaccinated. So he didn't disclose to her proactively, his friend with the chronic health condition, that he was unvaccinated. He was outed. Right. Like she said that he's chosen not to get vaccinated because of his religious beliefs. And she says that he tries to be an ethical person, but from the get-go, it's clear that it's pretty shady that if you're trying to get into a venue that requires a vaccination without a card, um, you know, it's not really ethical. And and if you're unvaccinated and you truly want to behave ethically, you really would have to entirely quarantine yourself away from society right now. And it's clear this guy isn't. So it's hard to make an argument that he engages in ethical behavior when right now this incredible influx of patients is overwhelming hospitals in the country, which are stretch so thin that at this point they can't even accommodate like non-COVID patients that might need emergency care for things like heart attacks or car accidents, you know, et cetera. So I agree. It's not exactly ethical behavior. (laughs) Not only is he not behaving ethically, the caller isn't behaving in a proactive way around her own health concerns here. She's not sitting on his dick. She is in the same room with him. He is, uh, by dint of being unvaccinated at this stage of the pandemic during the Omicron surge, really a high risk person for her to be in the same room with. So the distinction she's making between like, you know, we can't take it to the next level because he's unvaccinated and I have a chronic health condition and that would be risky. So we're just going to continue to hang out a few times a month. Can you erase that distinction for us? No, (laughs) you know, I think that that they're one and the same. And I think that, you know, one, one thing that I also want to point out is that the caller mentioned she's in a polyamorous relationship and mentioned that she appears to also have a primary partner. And I, as a polyamorous person myself with two partners, I know that polyamory is about openness and consent. And in the same way that I imagine that her primary partner would not be okay with her having unsafe sex with a new partner and then putting him at risk of STIs, of um, sexually transmitted infections, in addition to putting herself at risk, she would also be putting her partner at risk too. So mm-hmm. that's that's another thing to think about as well. <sighs> We're never going to see the <laughs> end of this pandemic, are we? 
I I don't know. I'm still maintaining some optimism. You know, I think that this um, particular variant is is really um, scary and it's, you know, spreading a lot through the country, but we do see more people getting vaccinated, more people getting boosted. And I would like to think in experiences like this, you know, that uh, the caller would put the greater good over her intense desire to hook up with this person. And, you know, hopefully we're all in this time making doing our best to make the safest decisions possible to protect both our, both ourselves and our communities. You know, I recently found out a friend wasn't vaccinated when we were all planning to get together for a game night. This is before Omicron emerged. Uh, yeah. And it came out that this person wasn't vaccinated. And I have a chronic health condition. I have asthma. And it's gotten progressively worse as I've gotten a little bit older. And this all came mm-hmm. out and we were like, yeah, no, we're not getting together for game night. You're not vaccinated. And our friend just so they could hang out with us and play games, went and got vaccinated. <laughs> right. That's an, that's an important societal pressure. And I wonder if this guy wants to hook up with this girl enough to maybe get vaccinated himself right. too. She could, she could put it on the line. The caller has <laughs> leverage here. And leverage which would not only does. make him safer, everyone he comes into contact with safer. If she said to him, like, you know, you can have some of your vestigial religious beliefs. You've walked away from right. the religion in which you were raised that issued medical treatment and nobody got vaccinated, you can have that, whatever remnant of it you want, or you can have my pussy take your pick. Yeah, maybe this is a new public health policy, like no sex with the unvaccinated. I mean, the CDC is all over the place. Maybe if they push that one, it'll work. (laughs) Dr. Stacey Dillon, thank you so much for how generous you've been with your time uh, and your expertise during the pandemic with my listeners and my readers. I really appreciate it. And I learned so much following you on Instagram. Everyone should be following you on Instagram at Stacey Dillon underscore MD. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Hey, Dan. 47-year-old male in Portland, Oregon. I'm a cis male who is in a toxic heterosexual relationship for 20 years. I have an ultra-conservative religious background. I've been with my current girlfriend for three and a half years now. She's had a very liberal and sexual adventurous and diverse background. We are very much in love. We plan on doing life together. Are extremely affectionate but she admits freely that she completely lost her sex drive about two years ago. She says I'm the best lover she's ever had in every way, has no complaints or suggestions at all, but feels no sex drive, whether she is with me or by herself. I love her and want to be with her, but the lack of sexual desire is causing significant self-esteem issues and making me feel like I'm somehow subpar. I don't know how to get around wondering why she's had such crazy kinky sex with so many past partners, yet she has no desire to have a physical relationship with me. She tells me that we have redefined what she previously thought of as love, and I'm the first guy she's ever introduced to her 13-year-old daughter. I know ours is the most significant relationship she's ever had, but we'll have sex every four to six months, and it feels completely obligatory on her part. She's quick to give me a hand job every couple weeks, but again, it feels obligatory. I've been working with a personal counselor who has helped me with my self-esteem issues, and I now realize my feelings of physical attraction are not dependent on her desire for me, but I don't want to be in another long-term sexless relationship. She recently reluctantly agreed to try a couple of counseling with me. After a couple of years, I'm insisting the problem was entirely mine, as she is perfectly happy with our current dynamic and has no problem with how things are. She feels completely fulfilled while I feel unwanted and unattractive. Am I making a mistake pursuing this relationship further? I love her so dearly, which is incredibly bittersweet as I treasure the affection she shares with me, but I am tortured by the lack of desire from the person I want most. 
We are scheduled to begin couples counseling in a couple weeks, but the feeling I get from her is that she'll appease me by attending a few sessions, and then we'll go back to insisting that it's entirely my problem since I'm the one who, who is dissatisfied. Am I doing something wrong? Am I being irrational? Am I being foolish pursuing this relationship? Is there a different strategy I should try to be able to have a mutual fulfilling relationship with this woman I love? I don't know what to do. Your expectations are completely reasonable. You want out of your committed romantic relationship what most people want out of their committed romantic relationships, intimacy and sex. Your girlfriend trying to make this somehow your problem, your fault, that there is this conflict in your relationship that may not be resolvable around desire, around sex, around intimacy, is cruel and unfair of her. Because again, your expectations, your desires here are, are, are completely reasonable, are standard. I'm not saying that she's broken. There are people out there who can have crazy, kinky, uninhibited sex with people they don't know well, with people they don't love, but can't have that same kind of sex or experience no desire for people that they do know well, that they do love. They've even got a name and a pride flag now, fray sexuals. If your girlfriend is a fray sexual, if she typically loses desire for a partner, the more intimate the relationship becomes, the closer she gets to that person, that's something that she needs to put on the table early in a relationship so that the person that she's entering into that relationship with can exit it if that's not something that they would be happy with or adjust their perfectly reasonable expectations and not expect sex from the relationship, not expect to be desired. And when you adjust your expectations, you can live by your own free choice in a relationship that doesn't meet all of your needs, that isn't everything that you wanted it to be, but live with some degree of contentment and or resignation about the state of the relationship. But either your girlfriend didn't know this about herself going into this relationship with you and so couldn't put that on the table so you could reset your expectations, or this isn't a, something that's true about her generally. You don't give much of her sexual history beyond the fact that she's had crazy, kinky, off-the-wall sex. Was that crazy, kinky, off-the-wall sex in the context of long-term partnerships? Well, if you're the only person who's ever met her child, I expect not. I expect those were all short-term, uncommitted relationships. So maybe your girlfriend didn't know this about herself then, but she knows it about herself now, and again, I'm not saying she's damaged goods, but she's not what most people are or capable of giving to a partner what most people can give at least a couple of years in to a committed romantic relationship, which is desire, capable of desiring her partner. <sighs> and if she could own it, if she could take some responsibility for the conflict at the heart of your relationship around a fundamental issue of sexual compatibility and own some of it, part of it, most of it, all of it, half of it at least, maybe you could make this relationship work with an accommodation that allows you to seek sex outside the relationship with people who desire you in the way that emotionally, I mean, my God, listen to the sound of your voice. Emotionally, you need to experience being desired in that way. Ideally, by your committed romantic partner, but if she's incapable of desiring you that way and you want to stay in this relationship with her, all right, 
That's a price of admission you're willing to pay to be in this relationship. What price of admission is she willing to pay to be in this relationship with you? What accommodation of your perfectly reasonable, understandable need to occasionally feel desired by your sexual partner is she willing to make? Obviously, she's not willing or incapable of faking it to a convincing enough degree. Is she willing to allow you to seek it elsewhere? And now, all that said, if your partner hasn't been so motivated as to already go and get her hormone levels checked, because perhaps the tanking of her desire has something to do with her hormone levels, okay, she needs to go do that. You say that her desire for you evaporated two years ago. Mm, what else happened two years ago? Hmm, March of 2020, we entered a pandemic two years ago. Some people have seen their libidos tank during the pandemic. Maybe that's something you could talk about and work through with the couples counselor. But you need to set a date. How much longer are you willing to put up with this? How much longer are you willing to absorb the rejection and the hurt that you're absorbing now? How many more blows can your self-esteem take? That's something you need to figure out for yourself, perhaps in a solo session with that couple's counselor. And then you need to set a date and you need to stick to that. And if there's been no improvement, if there's not a breakthrough around her ability to tap into whatever she was attracted to you about sexually, physically in the first place, or an accommodation on the table, yeah, you're going to need to exit this relationship for your own sake. Hi, Dan. Lesbian from Denver calling. The other day at work, I was approached by a coworker who I don't know super well. He's a young gay man who just relocated to the area a few months ago and wanted my advice because he said he doesn't know a lot of other queer people. He said he's been talking to a guy on the apps and they've been getting along really well. They haven't met up yet in person, but he said his concern was that they are, in his words, the same puzzle piece um, and was concerned that they weren't really going to be compatible. I asked him if he was willing to be the other puzzle piece, and he said that he was, though it's not his preference, um, but that this other guy was not. He did say that he tends to find a reason not to move forward with everybody and has an issue with commitment, um, and he was concerned that maybe that's what he was doing. But I wasn't really sure what to tell him. As a lesbian, I don't feel very qualified to answer this question, but I would love to hear your opinion. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Zach Noe Towers, an L.A.-based comedian that you may have seen on Ease Dating No Filter. He also has a very sexy podcast called Good Morning Sodomites that I will be a guest on when season two returns this year. Hey, Zach, how are you? I am great, Dan. How are you? I'm really good. I've missed Good Morning Sodomites. You're on hiatus right now, and I look forward to... uh, plopping my butt down on your podcast sometime soon. Oh, you can plop your butt down on my podcast. Although we're making this sound like a quid pro quo, like you come on me, I come on you. When I wanted to have you on my podcast, whether or not I ever got to come on yours. Okay. First of all, come on me, come on you. I can't. Um, (laughs) I, uh, I never thought that you would be a guest on mine. So I like never even like broached the subject. And then when you asked me, I was like, well, hell, I'm going to ask him too. Well, you know, you want to reciprocate. You want to like do the whole podcast reach around. Um, yeah. But but that's not why we're here. We're not here to like negotiate the terms of our upcoming um, podcast nuptials. We're here to give some advice to this poor lesbian with the coworker with no boundaries and no clue, <laughs> frankly. 
Um, I, this is fascinating because it sounds like she's a zookeeper trying to like find a mate for an endangered species. Like trying to get pandas to fuck. Yes. And it's like, girl, first of all, like, do, is, are you an integral part of this, like, uh, this, this scenario? Like, I think he's doing great by being on the apps. I would say there are many men. I think it's happening in Denver. Was this call from yeah, Denver? from Denver. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I feel like I need more information. I feel like he's, he's going to figure it out on his own. Denver's a big city. He somehow has it in his head that because he's been chatting with some guy on, on an app and they've determined that they're both tops or both bottoms, they're the same puzzle piece, that that means they can't meet. That means they can't hang out. That means they can't swap blowjobs. That means they can't swap handjobs. That means they can't be friends. He says he wants to connect with the gay community. And what does he mean by gay community? Like only tops if he's a bottom and only bottoms if he's a top? Yeah, no, I, I, I am as befuddled by this too. And I just can't get over like, it's one guy. I talk to 1.3 million men on Grinder every day. <laughs> I send out whole pics to half of those men. And like, you know, a small percentage, you know, are interested. So it's like, you just, it's a numbers game. You just got to like thrust yourself into the community. I'm always telling gay guys who are like, oh, I got on the apps or I got on Grinder, And like, I message people and they don't message me back. And it's like dispiriting and dehumanizing. That grinder is a gay bar you carry around in your pocket, and you used yes. to go into gay bars, and you would, or you still do. You, you live in uh, West Hollywood. Yes, you're a gay guy. You go into I a am. gay bar, you make eye contact with hundreds of guys, but only like one or two are like gonna sustain that eye contact, and that's how you have to regard like the the grind of grinder is like you're making eye contact with a lot of people. Most of them aren't gonna be interested. It's no really worse than the gay bars are or were that Grindr kind of replaced for a lot of people. So you're not being like done dirty if you get on Grindr and you send a bunch of messages to 1.3 million people in your case a day and you only get a couple of bites. That's normal. It's very normal. And and I, I will say this too, people, guys really tether their self-esteem to their online presence. And like, that's the most dangerous thing any of us can be doing. Like you need to really practice some like self-love before you put much weight into how men treat you on Grinder, you know? Right. Sometimes I listen to young gay men and you're a young gay man so far as I'm concerned. Uh, <laughs> there are younger than you now, so I'm sure you've gotten that experience where you're the yeah. older gay man in a conversation with a younger gay man. Uh, but so many young gay men seem to have it in their heads that the bars and the bathhouses were this place of camaraderie and brotherhood and the apps are somehow much, much worse. And you know what? You had to steal yourself before you walked into a gay bar for rejection. You had to steal yourself. You had, you had to like shrug it off when someone that you like bought a drink for or were chatting with wasn't interested in you when there was no vibe. You have to have that same skill set when you get on the apps. You have to have that same firewall where you're just not going to be devastated if you go home alone that day from your phone instead of the bar. Exactly. Exactly. But, but that's not what that's kind of not what's going on in this question. Like she's talking to this young gay oh, yeah. dude who wants to connect with gay men and yet is ruling out gay men that he can't fuck or be fucked well, by yeah. when she should tell him, like, go hang out with that dude. It's also like uh, I use my profile on Grinder to get to get what I want. So I like say like only looking for dates or looking for friends to like hit movies with and stuff. So like, I mean, if she needs to coach him through a, a profile update, like by all means, but like, 
I, I don't know. I, I, you need to keep your mind and your hole open in the situation. <laughs> you live in West Hollywood. <laughs> you must know gay couples there where they're both tops or both bottoms. Yes. Like that's, yes. A th- that's, that's an arrangement that can work. That's what double-ended dildos and very special guest stars are for. Yes. And I think guys, gay guys, in my experience, say they want a relationship and they say they want deeper connections, but their actions don't usually back that up. Do you know? Yeah. This guy's saying he wants to connect with the gay community, but then ruling out somebody he can't dick or be down by. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what this lesbian best friend, she's been drafted into that role in his life, needs to communicate to him. Like, go hang out with the dude. Be friends. Maybe, like, he's got a friend who would be a perfect boyfriend for you. Or maybe even if you're both the same puzzle piece, you guys could wind up dating and mutually masturbating and blowing each other a lot. And you bring in that bottom, that guest star bottom that you just you fuck within an inch of his life, you know? <laughs> not that everybody, a gay man has anal sex. There's like, no, you know, like a of quarter of not. all gay men never engage in anal sex. So you, not only don't you have to identify as a puzzle piece, a top or a bottom, there's a lot of gay guys out there who aren't those particular kinds of puzzle pieces. I, I find the whole top bottom thing, like as an Crazy. identity that people cleave to these days, a little confusing. It, 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 I, again, it disheartens me because I am in the, like the, the gayest place in America, it feels like. And there are still these like headless torsos who are like total top only looking for like ass up, you know, gym bottoms. And I'm like, wow. Like, or guys who like cannot get off from oral sex. And as someone who is obsessed with oral sex, like, I'm like, dude, give me a, I mean, I can do more than a butthole can. Like I promise. (laughs) I can bite you. Yeah. A bottle yeah. can't bite you. This butthole bites back, baby. Can I keep you on the line for another question or two? Yeah, yeah. Hi, Dan. I have a question for you and also maybe for some of your listeners. So the background is I had been a partner with this guy for about two years, and we've not been together for almost five years now. We've remained very good friends. We've dated other people, and our relationship now is 100% platonic. Neither of us have romantic or sexual feelings towards the other person, and I don't see that changing. However, we did remember that when we lived together, we were fantastic housemates, and he is now looking for another housemate. I am looking for a place, and we are considering living together again. The question I have is not about the relationship with him, which I'm sure the friendship will maintain, but what other people might think. He wants to start dating just new people again. I'm also vaguely interested in that, but am also very comfortable being single. And we just kind of wanted to know the general atmosphere of what people think it would be like if he were to bring a girl home. And should he introduce me as a friend, which I am, should he disclose that I used to be his partner five years ago, although nothing has happened since. So, yeah, I would just love to know what people think. I certainly don't want to prevent him from having a relationship, but he's a really great friend and housemate. In gay land, it's really common for exes to be friends and even live together as roommates. Freaks straight people the fuck out, though. Yeah, I was going to say, as I was listening to this, I was like, I don't share this concern in any way, just because, again, as we're bouncing all over the place, But with this, it's like, I'm just not a proponent of lying. So I think if it comes up, they should, they should just be honest about it. Like, yeah, we used to date. This is, unless they're worried about their feelings catching up with them, like let it go. 
well, you know, just just be be upfront. This is the sort of thing, though, that you're almost obligated to disclose because you have to assume the average straight person or most of them would have a problem with this. The average woman that your former boyfriend might date would probably take issue or be freaked out if he was living with his ex-girlfriend. Now, wow. Gayland, that's not a problem. In Gayland, you encounter guys who are living with their ex-boyfriends, sometimes their ex-husbands, and, and dating. And I, I, this is one of those like mysteries of straight people that I, you know, because <laughs> I do what I do, and I give mostly straight people advice for living. I constantly have to confront is these like special rules where you can't have a friendship with an ex because that's threatening. I can see why, like, you're best friends and you live with your ex, maybe you're getting all your emotional needs met from your ex in that roommate friendship relationship. And that could be threatening. You're sort of cheating on someone emotionally in advance of a relationship, or it may crowd out the ability to make that kind of deeper connection. But unfortunately, yeah, the caller, you have to assume that any guy, any woman that your ex boyfriend dates and any guy that you date is going to f- probably freak out about this. Blows my mind. And I do, I think a big part of being like a queer person is patiently waiting for straight people to catch up to what, <laughs> to what we already know and do. Cause it, you, you know, it used to be, Oh, gross. You met someone online discussing, Oh, you know, you're, you ate, you put your face on his butt. Like what? Are you? And now guys are on Tinder looking for a girl to finger bang them. You know, I'm just like, Oh, it's just like, it's like, I'm telling you open or like, you know, monogamish is like, it's the future. I know it is. It's just going to take straight people a while to catch up. And maybe one day they'll catch on to the whole double penetration thing. And then who knows what's next. Yes. Come swap parties. I mean, we took marriage from them like <laughs> six, seven years ago. Now you'd think they'd already be on like, yeah. Eating ass. Well, some of them are on eating ass. It was a- some of them. Some of them. <laughs> I'm doing my part. I'm doing every night on stage. I do my part, and I make a straight man feel uncomfortable about never having explored his asshole. Like that's that's my part in this. All right, Zach. One more question. All right. Yeah. Hey Dan, mid thirties, pansexual female here. It's taken me months to finally get the courage to call in. So here it goes. In the spring of last year, I got out of a three and a half year relationship with the man who gave me herpes. Before him, I was a member of a swingers club, had a lot of group sex and sex with strangers, and never caught any STIs. My monogamous long-term relationship is what gave me herpes. Go figure. Well, anyway, now I'm single with herpes, and I feel like my fun and crazy sex life is over. I've set up so many threesomes just to bail on all of them because I don't know how to bring up the herpes thing. I'm especially scared to hook up with women because I don't know what kind of protection I can use to keep them safe. And with group sex, men definitely don't want to keep putting on and taking off condoms when switching between me and other partners. I do take Valtrex daily to lower the chance of transmission. So my questions are, how am I supposed to bring this up in a group sex situation? Either planned with people that I meet on apps or spur of the moment at a swingers club. It's mentally exhausting enough talking about it with just one person. Also, is there another way to keep everyone in the group safe without having to make the guy put on a new condom every time he sticks his dick in me? And how do I have safe sex with women? Should they be worried about going down on me or scissoring? We don't have to belabor this. I I did a whole show with Dr. Ina Park uh, about herpes and the risks and 
the steps you can take to protect yourself and your partners, which includes, you know, taking the medication the caller is taking. The only mm-hmm. one thing I want to say, and I'm curious as to what your position on this might be, like if you're going to gangbangs and group sex parties, you're signing up for herpes, at least the exposure. Okay, thank you. I, I was really afraid to say something along these lines, but like as someone who has had a lot of casual sex in his life, I don't ask like if I, I, I just, I'm not burning man. I'm not like asking every guy that I go back to a tent with like his like herpes situation. Like I, I don't know if that's something that they should be like being forthright about, but if he didn't have an, if he didn't have a visible breakout or whatever, I, I don't think I'd be alarmed or very worried is that bad i I don't think it's bad you know i i I do want to say that for some people uh herpes is a very big deal and can be chronic and problematic and and a nightmare in their lives for a lot Mm -hmm. of people for most people the overwhelming majority of people it's kind of a non-issue Right. To the point that a lot of people who have it don't realize they have it. It's possible the caller had it before she got into that monogamous relationship and her immune system took a little bit of a dip and she only had her first outbreak after the monogamous relationship. Sure. But all that said, like one of the, you know, you do a cost benefit analysis when it comes to your sex life. And, you know, there's a benefit of getting to have a lot of crazy fun sex with a lot of crazy fun people. And the cost is a risk that you're going to be in the room with somebody who has herpes who may not know it or may not feel obligated to disclose it. And I think you just have to put, take it on yourself that if you're having sex with tons of people, you're getting regularly exposed to herpes. And so you can't be a giant baby about it when someone discloses. And I wouldn't discourage the caller from disclosing. Right. But, I, but I guess where I've arrived after all these years of thinking about it and talking about it is – there are certain circumstances under which you're not obligated to disclose. You're in a bathhouse having sex with 30 people. You don't have to tap them all on the shoulder, ask the DJ to turn down the music, and then announce to the room you have herpes, if, right. but no active outbreak, and you're taking meds, and please, can you turn the music back on now? That's not your <laughs> obligation to those other people having anonymous sex with you. Yeah, I mean, I just – I com- completely agree. And I do that all the time now, now that I'm like a sober person engaging in sexual activity, my sex life has dipped a little because I'm doing a lot more like critical thinking. Like, is this person worth blah, blah, blah. Is this person worth maybe an extra trip to a clinic? Is this person worth, you know, and sometimes it's yes and sometimes it's no, but like, yeah, you're rolling the dice a little every time you enter a group sex situation. That is one of the things you talk about a lot on your podcast that I really have found fascinating is your pre-getting sober sex life and how it differs from your post-getting sober sex life. Mm-hmm. And you have sometimes this nostalgia for <laughs> how uninhibited you were pre-sobriety. Oh, yeah. And it seems like you try to, to to lean back into that kind of disinhibition. Yeah. Um, do you feel like your sex life, and this is a totally different topic, so caller, we're leaving your question now. Um, do you feel like <laughs> your sex life is diminished by sobriety or is it better now because you remember more of it? So yes, it was It was like on a graph, it would have taken a sharp dip in every way, like less frequent, you know, um, not as good, all these things. But now it's like a steep incline because I'm like, so aware of like what I do like, and like, I'm so aware of who's inside of me, which is like a, a kind of new feeling, you know, like I know where I'm, I, when I wake up, I know where I am. Like it's, it's, it's so much more, I'm so much more present and like, 
yeah, maybe it's less, maybe I engage less, but like when I do, it's like, fuck, yeah. It's better and you feel better about it. Yeah. Yeah. That said, you know, there's plenty of people who need a drink or two to loosen up, to get horny. If alcohol or recreational drugs aren't a problem for you or a problem in your life, you don't have to feel bad about it. Do them for me, baby. I love drugs and alcohol, but like, yeah, it it per me, it wasn't just in the bedroom that drugs and alcohol like were like I was at my brother's dry wedding, you know, drunk pushing the flower girl down the aisle in a wheelchair. I didn't put her in a wheelchair, but you know. <laughs> she wasn't in a wheelchair at the beginning of the wedding, but the time you were through with the flower girl, she was in a wheelchair. Yes. Yeah. Basically. That sounds sad. Um, <laughs> you do this thing on your podcast that I invited you to do right now with me. We're going to turn the tables a little bit. You're going to ask me some questions. What is this segment from your this podcast? This is the segment. It's towards, mine. The, it's towards the end of my podcast. Good morning, Dynamites. It's called Hot or Not. And um, basically, I just ask my guest a series of, um, I bring up a topic and they tell me if they find that topic hot or not. Okay, I will I will play hot or not with you on my podcast. But here's the deal. I won't elaborate on my hots. Oh. I'll save elaborating on my hots for your podcast when I come on. Okay, that is a deal. That is such a deal. Okay, man scent or musk. Oh my God, I'm going to have to elaborate right away. Uh <laughs> It depends. Like, uh, I love the way my man smells or my men smell. I don't like man smells. It's not like I get a whiff of some stranger at the gym and I get a boner. I don't like BO <laughs> on strangers, but like, yeah, when the guys I like have been to the gym and haven't showered yet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, low hanging balls. Hot. Okay, good. Yeah, same. I mean, I just, I like it. Uh, Excessive body hair or like a hairy man. Not. Okay. Okay. Um, group sex. Ugh. You're it's a not for you. I know it's a not for you. Not. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If I control the invitation list, if I get to put the guest list together and you know organize the table seating charts myself, uh, <laughs> then it can be hot. Like I'm not gonna lie and say I haven't had group sex. But uh, you need an itinerary of what holes will be visited, what poles will be visited. I need to know everybody. Okay. No strangers. We can make that happen. Just put me in touch with your assistant. (laughs) (laughs) Come. Hot. Okay. uh, uh, Water sports. Sean Hannity, not. (laughs) Timothy Chalamet (laughs) wanted to pee on me, hot. Okay. Yeah. Okay. These are not like, yeah, I'm not going to fucking wheel out, you know, uh, <laughs> like okay, on a technicality, like- Dan, you said water sports are hot. So I have this <laughs> hobo from the train station is going to pee on you now. And, and you can't say no because you said it's yeah. hot. <laughs> um, Dom sub play hot. Oh, okay. Wait, being Dom hot being sub hot. Okay. Oh, your eyes lit up like a little kid on Christmas morning when I said Dom sub play. And so I was like, there's something here. We need to dive. And you can ask me follow-up questions when I do your podcast. Okay. 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 Um, morning sex. Not. Yeah, I kind of agree. Sex outdoors. Not in public necessarily, but like outdoors. Not. Okay. Because you don't. Oh, damn it. We'll talk more on the pod. God can see you outside. No. You need a roof over um, your head. Um, 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 choking. Not. 
Okay. Sex that leaves a mark. Hot. Okay. Wait, how many more of these can we do? <laughs> I think we should do. I think we should. We should save some for your show. Okay. 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 Because I'm yeah. really looking forward to to coming on your show. Uh, oh yeah, you're gonna come part, over my show. I'm gonna come on your show so hard, and I and I can't <laughs> wait. And I want to thank you for coming all over my show just now. Oh, anytime. I always have a load of show in me for you. <laughs> Zach Noe Towers is an LA-based comedian. He is a panelist on Ease Dating No Filter. For folks who haven't seen the show, how would you describe it? Um, it's a series of blind dates and then six comedians kind of making jokes about it the whole time. <laughs> it's. I, I've watched a couple of episodes because you were going to come on uh, the show today. It's appalling in a in, yeah. in the best possible way like, like 90 days fiance is appalling it's yes. appalling in the same spirit it's brain candy be sure to check out zach's terrific podcast good morning sodomites and if you're in san diego or las vegas you can catch zach opening for whitney cummings on her theatrical tour zach thank you so much for jumping on the phone today that was a blast please come back yes dan i'll jump on you anytime hi dan i'm a cis bisexual woman in her early 20s calling from New York City. I had a kind of odd experience this week, wanted to get your take on it, kind of an am I the asshole question per se. Um, I've been talking to this guy for like a month or two. We've been FaceTiming every night. The first time we got together, it went really well. We slept over, had a lovely time. The second time we got together, we had an equally okay time, but he brought up this weird thing when we were making out, and he said, you know, I really don't like my hair touched. Can you please not touch my hair? And I said, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Like, I'll try to refrain. But I just, I guess I didn't take it really seriously, honestly. He said it was something to do with his mother. Trying to freak me out. And I kind of just pushed it aside, and we kept making out. And once or twice, my my hand kept, like, drifting out to, toward his hair. And I guess that's, you know, not great. He was like, that's really not great. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll try better. We hang out the third time. Everything's going fine. We're at my apartment. And he gets on top of me to kiss me. His hair's quite long. And I take my fingers, as I normally would, and kind of ran them through his hair pushing his hair back so I could get a better view of his face. And he recoiled and said that I violated his boundaries, that I wasn't respecting him. And then he left my apartment and I haven't seen him since. Now, to me, this is kind of a weird thing. I don't think I can be with someone sexually whose hair I can't touch. Uh, just for context, like, we're both white. Like, there's no racial element to this or something like he's a very privileged white boy I don't really understand why he has this but I obviously am not him and I can't imagine that he could have a sexual relationship with someone and never have them touch his hair so I guess I'm kind of wondering as a survivor of like essay and rape and everything else did I do the wrong thing I'd be horrified if I truly ignored someone's consent. You feel like touching someone's hair is normal during a sexual encounter. And you may be right. That may be normal. That may be typical. It may be something most people are comfortable with and most people do. 
and don't necessarily seek prior enthusiastic consent before doing, but this wasn't a normal, typical sexual encounter with somebody with normal or typical boundaries where their hair is concerned. This guy has very specific boundaries about his hair and he relayed them to you. It's not like you touched his hair and he freaked out and then you found out about this boundary. He told you that this would be a problem, you touching his hair, anybody touching his hair. Apparently that's a trigger for him. He made that clear and you pushed it aside. In your own words, you pushed it aside. You disregarded his stated boundary. You violated his consent and touched his hair. And to you, that doesn't seem like it should be a big deal. But obviously, it was a very big deal for him. That's why he brought it up before your first sexual encounter. May have been the case that that second time when you touched his hair, you guys were making out, he gave you a second chance after you violated his consent, after you ignored his stated boundaries the very first time. He gave you a second chance and his hair fell in your face and maybe on impulse and without thinking, by reflex, you brushed his hair aside. You got it out of your face. Perfectly understandable. But... If the tone you took with him in that moment is similar to the tone you're taking here as you recount what happened during these two sexual encounters with this guy, I can understand why he doesn't feel safe being sexual with you. And surely you, as a survivor of sexual abuse, should be able to understand that. If he was a woman who'd been sexually assaulted and, you know, now having her breasts touched was triggering for her because something happened during the sexual assault involving her breasts and it just throws her out of the moment to have her breasts fondled or groped or played with. And she communicated to a sexual partner, so let's say this was a friend of yours, communicated that to a sexual partner, anything goes, don't touch my breasts. And that guy was like, well, you know, in a normal, typical sexual encounter with a normal, typical, healthy person with breasts, their sex partner gets to touch their breasts. So I'm just going to touch your breasts anyway. You would, and I think quite rightly and probably very easily, be able to identify who the asshole was in that encounter. And it's not the person with the boundary that rules out something that a, an average, normal, typical sexual encounter might be inbounds, you know, rules out a bounds, something that might be inbounds. You know, both these things can be true. You present this at the end of your call like an either or. Are you being unreasonable or does he have some things he needs to work through in therapy? You are being unreasonable. And he may, or let's go on a limb. He does have some things he needs to work through in therapy. Maybe we all have some things we need to work through in therapy. Maybe he's already been to therapy. And what he worked on with his therapist or where he got while working with his therapist was to a point where he could communicate this boundary. He could say to sex partners, can't have been an easy thing for him to say because it does, you know, sound a little odd. Maybe that's what he did in therapy. Worked on being able to make this boundary very clear with his sex partners because for him, having his hair touched is very triggering. Yeah, so maybe he already went to therapy. This is where he got. And maybe you are being unreasonable. And for a survivor of sexual assault, this is a very strange blind spot for you to have. Maybe that's something you need to work on in therapy. And maybe when somebody makes a sexual boundary clear to you. That isn't something you push aside based on your ideas about what may or may not be normal or typical or expected in a sexual encounter. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old bi male from Michigan. My girlfriend, my fiance, had a sex video leaked 
of an incident before we got together, and it was sent to everybody, you know, all of our mutual friends, and it kind of traumatized me in the sense that, like, I can't allow her to give me head anymore because I can't help myself picturing what she was doing with that guy. And it's really put a hold in our relationship. Just so I'm following the timeline here correctly, this sex video, the video of your girlfriend that was sent to all of your mutual friends, leaked. Somebody maliciously spread that sex video around, sent it to people to, I assume, humiliate and embarrass, perhaps retaliate against your girlfriend. It leaked before you two got together. It leaked before you began to date. It leaked before you were engaged. If the fact that your fiance had had some other dude's dick in her mouth before your dick came into her life was such a problem for you, how did you end up dating? Why did you end up dating? Why did you inflict yourself on her? I don't understand. I don't understand. If this was a problem for you, it was a problem for you before you began to date. Uh, I don't think that your girlfriend, your fiance, should have to put up with a partner, should have to date or be with a guy who looks at that or, or knows about it and thinks she's the one who did something wrong. And you're calling for help. You're not calling to tell me that your girlfriend is a terrible person because this happened to her. You do identify the problem as yours and they don't want to come down too hard on you. You also say that you're bi, which means you've had more than one dick in your mouth, I assume. Why is it a problem that your girlfriend's had more dicks in her mouth or your fiance than just your dick? That's something you should work through, I, I think, with a therapist and unpack your sexist fucking double standards and your Madonna whore bullshit and your straight guy sense of entitlement, if not to a fiance who's a a virgin and has never touched anybody else's dick, but at least to a fiance that allows you or that you could with whom you could suspend your disbelief and pretend it's only ever been your dick in her mouth. You knew it was never just your dick in her mouth. You were sexually active before you met her. I assume she was sexually active before she met you. So even in the absence of the video evidence that you probably shouldn't have looked at, if you thought you might have this kind of reaction to it, you had to know that other dicks had been in her mouth, had passed her lips on her face. And so, yeah, I find myself feeling very frustrated with you and for your fiance. Maybe your fiance loves sucking dick. And so the fact that you can't allow her to suck your dick after watching this video, you know, is a problem for her. It makes her feel bad. It makes her feel shamed and, and, and victimized again by the person who spread this sex video around, who leaked this sex video. Or maybe she doesn't want to suck your dick at all and she's relieved and that's why she's still your fiance. If I was dating somebody who saw a, you know, revenge pornography of me online or it was sent to them and then they had a problem with me, had a problem engaging with me sexually because of what had been done to me, by some other asshole, I wouldn't continue to date or see that person. So maybe your fiance continues to date or see you because not getting to suck your dick isn't a problem for her. But if it is a problem for her, 
she deserves better than you. She deserves a guy who doesn't need to be able to lie to himself about his girlfriend or fiance never having touched another man before. Yeah, I guess I am kind of beating up on you just a little bit. Get to a therapist, Madonna Horror Complex, Google it, look it up, talk with your therapist about it. Get past this. You're 26 years old. If this relationship, you know, this engagement goes tits up because you can't get past this, uh, assuming you're not going to date, you know, age inappropriate partners, assuming you're not going to date women young enough to be virgins or go out there and find the women your age who are virgins in a couple of years, you're going to have to work through this hang up of yours at some point. All right. And it'll be worth it. I assume you like your fiance. I assume you love your fiance. If you love her, Stop treating her like she did something wrong by not allowing her the pleasure of sucking your dick. That's just assholery. And if you were my fiance, that would be disqualifying assholery and you wouldn't be my fiance anymore. All right, before I get to listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. In reaction to a news story in The Guardian with the headline, Face Masks Make People Look More Attractive, Study Finds, Esther DeVeger tweets, Okay, that headline made me laugh, but interesting how COVID has impacted what we find attractive. As often cited on the Savage Lovecast, good judgment is attractive. Yeah, it is. And wearing masks right now during the Omicron wave, that is one way to demonstrate good judgment. Brian, proud to be vaccinated, boy tweets, Today's Savage Lovecast is a masterclass in talking to your kids about porn. I'm the proud parent of an ace NB lesbian 16-year-old and a late-blooming 14-year-old boy, neither of them watching porn that I know of. But when it's time to have that conversation, Dan Savage crushed it on how to talk about porn and the real world with your kids. Thank you, Dan. You're welcome, Brian. But I think the time to have the conversation with your kids about porn uh, is now. Now you can have those conversations. You can start to have them before your kids are watching porn and a 14 year old and a 16 year old, even if you think they might not be watching porn yet, odds are they're watching porn or have watched porn already. And finally, sex coach Shannon tweets, Dan just said kitchen sink polyamory on the Savage Lovecast and I'm giggling because well, yeah, you do kind of get everything but the kitchen sink in poly sometimes. Ugh, my brain, what grandpa meant to say was kitchen table polyamory. That is an expression. Readyforpolyamory.com defines kitchen table polyamory as what happens when the entire poly network gets along well enough that they could sit down at the kitchen table together. Kitchen sink polyamory? Yeah, that's not a thing. But maybe it could be or should be. Maybe it could mean, you know, your new secondary partner has been around long enough and sitting at the kitchen table with you long enough that they can get up from the kitchen table, that they can get their ass up from the kitchen table and help do the dishes every once in a while. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And as ever, a big thank you to everyone who tweeted or posted to your Instagram stories or Facebook about the show this week. Helps spread the word about the Lovecast and we really appreciate it. And now, listener response calls. Hey, Dan, this is a response call for the trans guy in the last episode who lost his mom shortly after coming out to her. I'm a th- late 30s 
trans man who lost my mom abruptly after starting transition nine years ago. And while coming out to her was horrible, she had started to come around a little bit when she passed. And while I want to tell you, man, that she would be proud of the man that you are if she'd have had more time here, my dad's still alive and he's an asshole. So uh, that's going to be a struggle no matter how your relationship with her was or what kind of person that she was, and I'm so sorry about that. But on the topic of the funeral, if you're going to her funeral and you're going to bring your genuine love for your mother to your funeral, you have to show up as your genuine self, man. Hi, I'm just adding my two cents to the whole choking slash strangulation issue. At the very end of your conversation with Dr. Herbenik, Dan, you mentioned breath play and the possibility of using a gas mask. And I think it's really important when you're talking about choking with a partner or a potential partner to differentiate between choking as an, as an act of breath play and cutting off air or choking as a symbol and a sign of dominance and submission. Because for a lot of people, it's not about the breath play so much as it's about what it stands for, the utter loss of control or the complete control over somebody else. And in that case, if you talk about it in advance and what you want, it's really easy to do this fake mind. You just put your hand lightly on someone's throat, maybe two hands. You're not squeezing at all. But just by encircling your hands and maybe adding in some dirty talk, you can have the all the excitement that comes with the possibility of choking, all the loss of the surrender of control, all the taking of control, and it's a very safe way to, I mean, unless someone gets carried away and starts to actually squeeze, it can be a very safe way to get that same feeling met because a lot of times it's not about going without air. It's about feeling possessed. Hello to the woman in episode 794 who wants to try out some butt stuff with guys but is grossed out by it. Here's my advice. Try fingering a dude in the shower with the water running and of course a ton of soap at your disposal and that way, if something goes wrong, you can get very clean very quickly. And also, I just wanna give you props for being willing and interested to try this out. A lot of people out there who are grossed out by things wouldn't even entertain the notion. So you're awesome and good luck. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about some of the advice I gave on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and your comments is to use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment or both, and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We do prefer voice memos, better sound quality. But we love your calls, we love your questions, we love your comments, however you choose to get them to us. Tickets for the opening festival of Hump 2022, my dirty little film festival, are on sale now. The initial run where you can check out a brand new slate of all new films and cast your vote for the Hump Awards after. We'll be screening in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, and Olympia from the end of January through the beginning of March. And as a special gift, every purchase of a ticket to Hump comes with a free one-month Magnum subscription to the Savage Lovecast. So go to humpfilmfest.com right now, grab your tickets and your Magnum sub. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Stacy DeLynn on Instagram at StacyDeLynn underscore MD. And follow Zach Noe Towers on Twitter at Zach Noe Towers. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'll be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. And hey, everybody, mark your calendars. Next January 14th. 
are all celebrating together. The Feast of the Ass.